Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Today's show is a little different. As you may remember, a couple of weeks ago, we launched a hotline for staffers and former staffers to call in and share their stories. The idea for the hotline came from a couple of listeners, but first credit goes to Brian Berry, a former staffer in the U.S. Senate. I'm pleased to say that we got a lot of stories, more than we could air in this episode. You're going to hear some of them. They reflect some of the best things about being a staffer. The -the behind-the-scenes work that goes into governing and campaigns the meaning that we find in our work, the interesting people we get to meet along the way, and the humor and self-reflection that can arise when things go sideways. I hope you enjoy the four stories we've selected today, and I encourage you to call in and share yours. We will do episodes like this on occasion. They can be about anything you want, as long as they're true stories. The number, again, is 888-416-2132. Now, without further ado, here are the staffer stories for our first hotline episode. At the end, I will tell you a story about my greatest, most grand, totally absurd, completely embarrassing, royal screw-up story that is all my own. I figure that's only fair that I reciprocate since I've asked other people to share their stories. Okay, here are the stories. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Anne. Many years ago, I used to work for the Federal Office of Management and Budget, OMB, and every year we would go through the process of doing director's reviews, where we would prepare these elaborate books for the director of OMB to review, and the policy councils would be involved, and it was the big pinnacle of the whole budget cycle. So there was a tradition at OMB to try to do funny covers on on the on the director's review books, and everyone would kind of compete to have the funniest cover. And my boss at the time was a very funny man. So our group of staff decided that we were going to Photoshop the head of our political appointee on top of a person who was taking a jackhammer to the treasury building. And we all thought that this was funny and would go over really well. And in those days, we would print the director review books and distribute them to the desk. Nothing was done electronically. So we would print out 40, 50 books and distribute them all around to the different buildings. So we were all pleased with ourselves, handed them all out, go in the next day, and we're supposed to have the director's review, I think, that day. We get a call that morning at 6 a.m., frantic from my boss, saying that the political appointee has seen the Photoshopped picture, does not think it's funny at all, and we need to go retrieve all the books that have already been delivered before anyone picks them up or sees them. So a group of us scrambled to get into the office as quickly as possible, had to sneak around the old executive office building and the new executive office building, pulling all the paper copies of these books. And my boss, who was generally a guy who had a good sense of humor and thought everything was funny, looked stricken and ashen and I think was seriously concerned that he might be reprimanded which I don't think actually ever happened. But the lesson I learned is that um, I guess we weren't as funny as we thought and always make sure that the political appointee thinks your joke is funny. Uh, I was a Capitol Hill staffer for about a decade. But when I look back, I think what really got me going on wanting to pursue that path was an experience I had in 1992. It was a presidential campaign. I was in college and Bill Clinton was running. 
And I got roped into volunteering to help out with a press conference he was holding in Philadelphia. He was going to feature all of these generals and admirals and talk about his position on defense. And I volunteered to help out. My job was to get those military leaders back and forth to the press conference. So I helped set up the press conference and, and work there. And, and then afterwards, I kind of bluffed my way past the Secret Service because I was a volunteer and I, I wanted to meet Bill Clinton. So I managed to get right outside the green room and the door was open and I could, I was a few feet away from Clinton. I could hear him talking to the generals and admirals explaining how he's running on fumes. He's totally lost his voice at this point in the campaign. So as he's leaving, he's about to walk past me. I stuck out my hand and I meant to say something inspirational like, governor, we're all pulling for you, sir. You know, something like that. But what came out was governor. Uh, well, it, he was up to the moment. He pulled me in for one of these half handshake, half hug type deals that Clinton did. And he looked me in the eye and he said, thanks, buddy. And at that moment, it felt like there was nothing else happening in his universe, not the exhaustion of a big campaign, not losing his voice. I was just so struck by the focus and the magnetism. And I thought, oh, man, this is what an inspiring leader does. And then a few minutes later, I got this sort of bookend experience in leadership. I was in a van helping to shuttle one of the generals back to the airport. And we're on a bridge over a river outside Philadelphia. And the driver of the van got confused and he suddenly yanked on the emergency brake. And so the van spun out. It was really a miracle that we didn't go flying off the bridge or get T-boned by oncoming traffic. So the driver started us up again. Our hearts are pounding. We're feeling this giant adrenaline dump. And the general, coincidentally, his name was General Comfort. You can't make this stuff up starts telling us this story about how when he was 16, he was fleeing from the cops for some reason in his old car. And in order to avoid them, he suddenly pulled off the road, yanked on the emergency brake so that his brake lights wouldn't come on and they wouldn't realize where he'd left the road. And that's how he got away. And of course, by the time he's done telling this story, we're all laughing and relaxed. And I realized this is someone who has led young people in stressful situations before. And that's what calm, experienced leadership is. And so those two experiences that day became sort of foundational for me in terms of what politics and leadership and inspiration could be. And it made me want to be part of something that was inspirational and meaningful. I'm currently a lobbyist um, with the American Association for Cancer Research. Prior to that, I have about six and a half years of, um, <clears throat> of Hill experience um, all on the House side. And so getting more into the backstory, um, I was working as a committee clerk with the House Committee on Oversight and Reform back in the 111th Congress. And so when the Republicans took control of the House, in 2011, you know, there wasn't too much um, need for a um, minority committee clerk, so I got let go. And for whatever reason, I'm still trying to figure it out sometimes, um, I didn't get a full-time job for five years. I applied to, you know, several members' offices and several lobbying firms and nonprofits and whatever, whatever, and couldn't get anything. So, 
I worked as a part-time administrative assistant for my church and, you know, barely making any money. And so, you know, to, to make matters more complicated, I just um, recently had my daughter at that time. You know, the stress was getting to my marriage. My mother passed away in 2012, and it was a very difficult time. So, you know, during that five-year period, I went to graduate school, got my master's degree in public policy, and again, still looking for jobs and nothing. You know, so let's fast forward it to April 2016. Through a friend of mine, I was able to get a job at Booz Allen Hamilton as a senior consultant on a contract with um, the CIO's office within the U.S. Department of Labor. And um, basically, I was the special assistant to the CIO and one of the division heads. And, you know, wasn't the ideal job. You know, I, I wanted to be back in the political field, but um, it was a good salary. And, you know, perhaps I could make some contacts along the way. So I took the job. And, you know, I knew at the time that um, or at that time, um, Tom Perez was the secretary of labor. And I knew that Chris Liu was the deputy secretary of labor. And I knew who both men were um, through their reputation in the um, political field. And I was at DOL from April 2016 to March 2017. I did well in my job, received a letter of commendation by the CIO. Um, you know, but nevertheless, they swapped my position out. I stayed with booze for, um, a few more months working on some projects from home, but unfortunately I wasn't able to find another project. So I was let go from booze. So once again, I'm unemployed. <clears throat> Luckily for me, I saved up a decent amount of money. Um, but the, you know, the money started running out after a while and I had to apply for unemployment but I needed some more money on top of, you know, what the unemployment check provided. So I signed up to be a Lyft driver and I picked up my first Lyft passenger in March, 2018. And, you know, at first it was, it was kind of a drag, but you know, I actually fell in love with it. And in addition to being a Lyft driver, I also signed up to be an Uber driver. When I wasn't driving, I was applying for jobs on the Hill and government affairs, law firms, et cetera, et cetera. And I had some interviews, but they fell through. And I began to lose faith and I was hurt. Maybe I should just leave politics behind and think of something else to do. Now, where does Mr. Liu come in? I was in D.C. on a June night um, heading south on 19th Street. I was in Northwest. Um, I just finished dropping off an Uber rider and I quickly switched to Lyft. As soon as I switched to Lyft, I got an alert on my phone to pick up someone named Chris on K Street. I looked at the picture of the rider, and I remember saying to myself, is this who I think it is? And yes, it was Chris Liu. I stopped on the corner. Mr. Liu got in the car, got in my car, and I turned back and said, good evening, Mr. Deputy Secretary. I looked in the rearview mirror, and he had a look of surprise on his face, and he said, Good evening. Do I know you? And I said, no, sir, but I used to work as a contractor at DOL in the CIO's office, and I'm a former congressional staffer. And then I started running down his resume, and he was impressed. He then asked, what are you doing now? And I said, I'm doing this, sir. And I gave him the whole story that I shared with you, losing my job, grad school, et cetera. He was silent for a moment and then just yelled, yelled out, you know, what in the hell are you doing this for? And I smiled back and I said, I don't know. Nobody seems to want me. We talked a little politics and he appeared to be impressed with my knowledge. After about 20 minutes, I dropped him off at his destination in Arlington. Before he got out of my car, he told me it was a pleasure talking with me. 
He wished me well, gave me his business card, and told me to contact him the next day. He then gave me a 30 to 40% tip and a five-star rating. I went home that night and cried. Um, Mr. Liu didn't promise me a job that night or gave me Barack Obama's phone number. But what he gave me was some respect, and it meant a lot. It made me not quit politics, and I contacted him the next day, and he immediately remembered me. He offered to put me in a listserv of former Obama staffers who were looking for work or simply um, there to, to network. A few months later, <clears throat> excuse me, in September 2018, I was hired to work as the manager of government affairs for a small lobbying firm in D.C. I stayed there for three months until I went back to the Hill to work as a clerk for the House Committee on Homeland Security in 2019. After a year and a month with the committee, I was hired to be Senior Manager of Congressional Relations with the American Association for Cancer Research in February 2020, literally a month before quarantine. It's a great job, my first serious lobbying job. I always emailed Mr. Liu after getting my new jobs, and he remembered me and always wished me well. He's truly one of the best, and that's my Chris Liu story. Boy, did I screw up, and it's a good story, and I learned valuable lessons. Uh, in 2012, I was working for Connecticut Governor Dan Malloy. I was his senior advisor, um, his top political person. Uh, I had overseen both of his campaigns for governor, and I was uh, in the administration as a senior advisor. Um, and so I had many different responsibilities. Uh, I generally oversaw the communications and policy apparatus of the executive branch. I served as his chief spokesperson. Um, and I also was asked to write uh, all of his big speeches. In preparation for his big speech on education reform in 2012, which was much, much anticipated, um, I put together a speech, and because of Governor Malloy's uh, disabilities, he has a form of dyslexia. It's not really dyslexia, but it's kind of like that. Um, it's very difficult for him to read from a teleprompter, and so we had to practice extensively um, we practiced mm, probably 20 read-throughs over the course of about three weeks and, you know, made tweaks to the speech along the way. The morning of the actual speech to a joint session of the General Assembly, we did one more read-through and it was clear that we needed to cut. It was just, it was like five minutes too long. And so, uh, as anyone who's ever written a speech knows, a speech is like a sweater. It, it's knitted together and if you pull a loose thread, sometimes the whole thing untangles and I had, you know, two hours to figure this out, and I was frantically going through the speech, looking to chop sentences, words, without undermining the integrity of the speech itself. Um, a big piece of the education reform uh, was tenure reform, which for anyone who knows uh, teachers' unions, um, tenure is an extremely sensitive issue. And as a Democrat, Dan Malloy taking it on was, you know, fairly unprecedented. And so the, the section of the speech on tenure was a very nuanced section, which I had worked on closely with the education commissioner. Um, it was about seven paragraphs long, and we went into excruciating detail uh, in order not to offend and to make sure uh, that everybody understood exactly what was being proposed. It became clear to me that that section was, I thought, um, easy to condense. And as I was reading through the paragraphs, you know, we sort of seem to be saying, if you just show up, you get tenure. And so I turned to the education commission and I said, that's pretty much what we're saying here. Show up and you get tenure. I said, is that true? And he kind of nodded at me. And I thought, well, let's just say it then. So I took six very nuanced paragraphs. I reduced it to one sentence uh, in which the governor said, show up and tenure is yours. And he actually never saw that change 
The first time he saw that language, it was on the teleprompter during the speech. And the reaction was almost immediate and universally horrible from teachers. They were drastically offended because he seemed to be minimizing um, the difficulty of their jobs, which was not at all my intention. My intention was just to simplify the, the tenure issue and to save time in the speech. Well, we went out and did a series of town halls on the education package, and at every single one, literally hundreds of teachers showed up uh, screaming at him, holding up signs that said, hey, hi, we showed up. And I thought, I couldn't, you know, it was a monumental mistake, which I felt horrible about. I felt worse about it because, you know, the governor took the hit for it because he was the speech maker. Um, but he hadn't even seen it until he actually gave the speech. And, you know, after like three or four days of protests, I, I went into his office and he and I were close personal friends as well. And I said, Dan, like, let me resign. Like, let me take the hit for the hit. He just looked at me like I was crazy. He said, forget it. He said, if it hadn't been that, they would have gotten mad at something else. He's like, don't ever say that again. Um, and so we hung together. We stuck it out. And so in the end, after two years of uh, acrimony between the two teacher unions, uh, in Connecticut and Governor Malloy, um, largely because his opponent in 2014, a Republican named Tom Foley, was the same guy he had dispatched in 2010 and was just awful from the teachers' perspectives. In the end, after two years of acrimony, um, the teacher unions actually both endorsed Governor Malloy and he was reelected. Um, the lesson I learned, words matter. I guess I always knew that, I'm a communications person, um, but words matter and uh, I'm not as smart as I thought I was because I was trying to be clever and I was trying to cut a corner and I was trying to take a very nuanced issue. And rather than taking the time to explain it in detail, um, I tried to have the governor explain it in a few words. Uh, a massive mistake, which I think about all the time, which is still referenced in the press from time to time, um, but a really valuable lesson learned. Thank you. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed those stories as much as I did. Now it is time for me to share with you my most embarrassing royal screw-up story. It dates to the time when I first got onto Capitol Hill. It was my first job. I was 23 or 24 years old, and it was in a leadership committee uh, under Senator Daschle, who was the minority leader at that time. Uh, it was known as the Democratic Technology and Communications Committee, and the the Committee leadership structure uh, has changed over time, but that component of of the leadership committee was a communications office. It had a TV studio, a radio studio, an internet studio, and our role was to work with the Democratic leadership and all of the Democratic senators to magnify uh, the the message of the day or the week, um, to really put a spotlight on our priorities, make news, uh, and connect the issues that we were working on in Washington back to their home states. And so one of the issues uh, that we worked on was uh, Democratic senators were fighting for new funds to repair crumbling schools, the actually the infrastructure of so many schools, uh, you know, K through 12 is in poor shape and they wanted to secure funding that could be drawn down to make repairs. And we came up with the idea. Uh, I can't remember whose idea it was, but uh, the idea was to create a hotline, sort of like the one that we have on this show to that uh, local uh 
parents, teachers, school administrators could call into if they had a school that was in dire need of uh, infrastructure uh, repairs. And, you know, what we were going to do with those stories was, you know, once we got word of them, sort of do some due diligence, investigate to make sure that, you know, there really was a need for new HVAC or, you know, to repair, you know, tiles that were falling out of the ceiling, that sort of thing. And then share that information with the Democratic senator who could then use it as an example of why Congress needed to take this step to, uh, you know, authorize and, and appropriate these new monies um, for their local school. Well, I was tasked uh, by my boss, Laura Quinn, with setting up the hotline. And so, you know, I had uh, a week, let's say, maybe 10 days to reach out to all the, the telco companies and set up a free 1-800 number. So in my, uh, you know, young staffer self, I made some phone calls and uh, got some pricing. And what what happened was I narrowed it down to one company. Can't remember who the, the, the telephone company was. But in order to get this 800 number, you know, they had to do some clearances. And so it wasn't as easy as uh, here's your number. It was like, well, we're going to figure out what the number is and, and tell you what it is. And and each day, you know, is passing. We're getting closer and closer to the press conference. Ultimately, like the day before the press conference, uh, you know, I, I'm told, look, it's either, by the telephone um, uh, company. It's either going to be this number or a second number, but it's definitely going to be one of these two numbers. And unbeknownst to all of my Senate colleagues, uh, it was unclear. Like they, they just knew that I was working on it and they didn't know that I was sweating the fact that I actually didn't have the number yet. And my terrible mistake is that when it came time to like <laughs> put the number in the press release, I just chose one of the numbers, not knowing firmly which one it was going to be. And so the press release is drafted, uh, the speeches are written, the signs are made, and the next day, Senator Daschle goes out and holds a press conference announcing the new hotline and encouraging people to call it in if they have a school that is in dire need of physical repair. Well, about 45 minutes after that press conference is over, a phone call comes in to our office, which is in the Hart Senate office building. And Senator Daschle's, uh, you know, leadership committee and, and his offices were in the Capitol. And I see my boss, Laura, quickly walk from her office out the door. And I know she's headed over to the Capitol. And I just start to sweat. And about half an hour after that, she comes back. And word has already trickled back during that meeting that the phone number is wrong. What had happened was, well, you know, I, I'd given the wrong number out and that had been announced, but the way it got back was like, all of a sudden, some lady in Delaware is getting <laughs> barraged with phone calls about crumbling schools. And that got reported back out to the chain. And 
it needed to be corrected. So we had to issue a corrective press release. We had to, you know, say that, you know, the hotline wasn't yet operational. It's kind of a disaster and completely embarrassing uh, for the senator, most importantly, the Democratic leadership, and totally humiliating for me. When Laura gets back to the office, um, I happen to be like standing up over near like a table that, you know, people were kind of sitting around and she walks over to me and she's taller than I am anyway. But at this moment, she's like 10 feet tall and I'm like three feet tall. And she leans over to me and says, this is a major fuck up. And she walks into her office and closes the door. And I just am dying. I mean, I am dying a thousand deaths. I know how stupid I have been. And I cannot believe I put the senator and his colleagues and all of my colleagues in this position. And about 20 minutes after that, Laura calls me into her office. And she was calm when she talked to me before. And she was calm in this conversation. And she said, look, I know you wanted to nail this project and do it well, but you have got to communicate with me and others when projects aren't coming together the way you hope. There are so many things we could have done to prevent this disaster. We could have easily postponed the press conference. That would not have been a problem if we waited one more day to get the phone number right. But the one thing you could not do is roll the dice on the phone number. And it has led to this big problem. So in the future, don't try to solve everything. Send up a flare and we can help you solve any problem that you have. And I left that conversation, I mean, one, just grateful that I hadn't been fired. She didn't even yell at me. She took the opportunity to see that, one, I was a hardworking kid who was trying to do the right thing. And she taught me both a lesson about myself of like, hey, it is not, you know, don't, uh, it's no great accomplishment to try to score the touchdown all on your own. It is a team effort. And communicating to others when you're having a problem uh, is exactly what you should be doing. It also taught me a lesson in leadership. She just handled it so kindly, gently. I, I should also note, she was the one who got in trouble. You know, I mean, she was the one who they called over to the Capitol to say, what the hell happened? It wasn't me. I was too low on the totem pole. I had put her in the most excruciating position. She didn't take it out on me. She used it as an opportunity to try to make somebody better. And I try to emulate that when I am working with young people. I always try to remember to say, hey, if you're having a trouble, you know, any trouble with this assignment, come back. Let's have a midpoint check-in. Let's just talk about the struggles so that we can start planning for option B or option C if A is not coming together. So Laura Quinn is the hero of my story. 
Uh, she belongs in the Stafford Hall of Fame. So I'm adding that to my story as well. Um, for all the things she has done in her career, which I could go on and on about, uh, but a total visionary um, about using technology to reach voters, inform them, uh, persuade them, uh, and helping the Democratic Party in a million different ways uh, in that regard. Um, so uh, hat tip to Laura Quinn. I hope you enjoy uh, my story uh, as gut-wrenching as I find it to tell. And I really encourage you to share stories that are memorable and impactful uh, of your career. They don't have to be royal screw-ups. As I said, they can be anything. Um, That phone number, again, is 888-416-2132. I want to thank everyone who called in, um, and I want to thank you for listening. Talk to you soon.